Hello, I'm back. And I have um, something interesting that I, I think that you will find interesting to listen to. And um, it's by Jules Verne. And it's A Journey to the Interior of the Earth. Mm, sounds good to me. Please visit www.librivox.org. This reading is by the soon-to-be world-famous Vinnie Bove. Visit Vinnie at www.boveart.com. And now, on with the show. A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne. Chapter 1. The Professor and His Family. On the 24th of May, 1863, my uncle, Professor Liedenbrock, rushed into his little house, number 19 Konigstrasse, one of the oldest streets in the oldest portion of the city of Hamburg. Martha must have concluded that she was very much behind hand, for the dinner had only just been put into the oven. Well now, said I to myself, if that most impatient of men is hungry, what a disturbance he will make. Am Liedenbrock so soon, cried poor Martha in great alarm, half opening the dining room door. Yes, Martha, but very likely the dinner is not half cooked, for it is not two yet. St. Michael's clock has only just struck half past one. Then why has the master come home so soon? Perhaps he will tell us that himself. Here he is, Monsieur Axel. I will run and hide myself while you argue with him. And Martha retreated in safety into her own dominions. I was left alone. But how is it possible for a man of my undecided turn of mind to argue successfully with so irascible a person as the professor? With this persuasion, I was hurrying away to my own little retreat upstairs when the street door creaked upon its hinges. Heavy feet made the whole flight of stairs to shake, and the master of the house, passing rapidly through the dining room, threw himself in haste into his own sanctum. But on his rapid way, he had found time to fling his hazel stick into a corner, his rough broad-brim upon the table, and these few emphatic words at his nephew, Axel, follow me. I had scarcely had time to move when the professor was again shouting after me, What, not come yet? And I rushed into my redoubtable master's study. Otto Liedenbrock had no mischief in him, I willingly allow that. But unless he very considerably changes as he grows older, at the end he will be a most original character. He was a professor at the Ohana and was delivering a series of lectures on mineralogy, in the course of every one of which he broke into a passion once or twice at least. Not at all that he was over-anxious about the improvement of his class, or about the degree of attention with which they listened to him, or the success which might eventually crown his labors. Such little matters of detail never troubled him much. His teaching was, as the German philosophy calls it, subjective. It was to benefit himself, not others. He was a learned egotist. He was a well of science, and the pulleys worked uneasily when you wanted to draw anything out of it. In a word, he was a learned miser. Germany has not a few professors of this sort. To his misfortune, my uncle was not gifted with a sufficiently rapid utterance, not to be sure when he was talking at home, but certainly in his public delivery. This is a want much to be deplored in a speaker, 
The fact is that during the course of his lectures at the Ohanim, the professor often came to a complete standstill. He fought with willful words that refused to pass his struggling lips, such words as resist and distend the cheeks, and at last break out into the unasked-for shape of a round and most unscientific oath. Then his fury would gradually abate. Now, in mineralogy, there are many half-Greek and half-Latin terms, very hard to articulate, and which would be most trying to a poet's measures. I don't wish to say a word against so respectable a science, far be that from me. True, in the august presence of rhombohedral crystals, retinasphaltic resins, galenites, phasaites, molybdenites, tongue states of manganese, and titanite of zirconium, why... <laughs> The most facile of tongues may make a slip now and then. It therefore happened that this venial fault of my uncle's came to be pretty well understood in time, and an unfair advantage was taken of it. The students laid wait for him in dangerous places, and when he began to stumble, loud was the laughter, which is not in good taste, not even in Germans. And if there was always a full audience to honor the Liedenbrock courses, I should be sorry to conjecture how many came to make merry at my uncle's expense. Nevertheless, my good uncle was a man of deep learning, a fact I am most anxious to assert and reassert. Sometimes he might irretrievably injure a specimen by his too great ardor in handling it, but still he united the genius of a true geologist with the keen eye of the mineralogist. Armed with his hammer, his steel pointer, his magnetic needles, his blowpipe, and his bottle of nitric acid, he was a powerful man of science. He would refer any mineral to its proper place among the 600 elementary substances now enumerated by its fracture, its appearance, its hardness, its fusibility, its sonorousness, its smell, and its taste. The name of Liedenbrock was honorably mentioned in colleges and learned societies. Humphrey Davy, Humboldt, Captain Sir John Franklin, General Sabine, never failed to call upon him on their way through Hamburg. Becquerel, Ebelman, Brewster, Dumas, Milne Edwards, St. Clair de Ville frequently consulted him upon the most difficult problems in chemistry, a science which was indebted to him for considerable discoveries, for in 1853 there had appeared at Leipzig an imposing folio by Otto Liedenbrock entitled A Treatise Upon Transcendental Chemistry, with plates, a work, however, which failed to cover its expenses. To all these titles to honor, let me add that my uncle was the curator of the Museum of Mineralogy formed by M. Struve, the Russian ambassador, a most valuable collection, the fame of which is European. Such was the gentleman who addressed me in that impetuous manner. Fancy a tall spare man of an iron constitution, and with a fair complexion which took off a good ten years from the fifty he must own to, his restless eyes were in incessant motion behind his full-size spectacles. His long, thin nose was like a knife blade. Boys have been heard to remark that that organ was magnetized and attracted iron filings. But this was merely a mischievous report. It had no attraction except for snuff, which it seemed to draw to itself in great quantities. When I have added, to complete my portrait, that my uncle walked by mathematical strides of a yard and a half, and that in walking he kept his fists firmly closed, a sure sign of an irritable temperament, I think I shall have said enough to disenchant anyone who should by mistake have coveted much of his company. He lived in his own little house in Konigstrasse, a structure half brick and half wood, 
with a gable cut into steps. It looked upon one of those winding canals which intersect each other in the middle of the ancient quarter of Hamburg, and which the great fire of 1842 had fortunately spared. It is true that the old house stood slightly off the perpendicular, and bulged out a little towards the street. Its roof sloped a little to one side, like the cap over the left ear of a Tugenbund student. Its lines wanted accuracy, but, after all, it stood firm, thanks to an old elm which buttressed it in the front, and which often in spring sent its young sprays through the window panes. My uncle was tolerably well off for a German professor. The house was his own, and everything in it. The living contents were his goddaughter Grauben, a young Verlandice of seventeen, Martha, and myself. As his nephew and an orphan, I became his laboratory assistant. I freely confess that I was exceedingly fond of geology and all its kindred sciences. The blood of a mineralogist was in my veins, and in the midst of my specimens I was always happy. In a word, a man might live happily enough in the little old house in the Königstrasse, in spite of the restless impatience of its master, for although he was a little too excitable, he was very fond of me. But the man had no notion how to wait. Nature herself was too slow for him. In April, after he had planted in the terracotta pots outside his window seedling plants of mignonette and convolvulus, he would go and give them a little pull by their leaves to make them grow faster. Oh in dealing with such a strange individual, there was nothing for it but prompt obedience. I therefore rushed after him. Chapter 2 a mystery to be solved at any price. That study of his was a museum, and nothing else. Specimens of everything known in mineralogy lay there in their places in perfect order, and correctly named, divided into inflammable, metallic, and lithoid minerals. How well I knew all these bits of science. Many a time, instead of enjoying the company of lads of my own age, I preferred dusting these graphites, anthracites, coals, lignites, and peats. And there were bitumens, resins, organic salts to be protected from the least grain of dust, and metals from iron to gold, metals whose current value altogether disappeared in the presence of the republican equality of scientific specimens, and stones, too, enough to rebuild entirely the house in Königstrasse, even with a handsome additional room, which would have suited me admirably. But on entering this study now, I thought of none of these wonders. My uncle alone filled my thoughts. He had thrown himself into a velvet easy chair, and was grasping between his hands a book over which he bent, pondering with intense admiration. Here's a remarkable book! What a wonderful book! he was exclaiming. These ejaculations brought to my mind the fact that my uncle was liable to occasional fits of bibliomania. But no old book had any value in his eyes unless it had the virtue of being nowhere else to be found, or at any rate, of being illegible. Well now, don't you see it yet? Why, I have got a priceless treasure that I found this morning in rummaging an old Hervelius' shop, the Jew. Magnificent, I replied with a good imitation of enthusiasm. What was the good of all this fuss about an old quarto? bound in rough calf, a yellow faded volume, with a ragged seal depending from it. But for all that, there was no lull yet in the admiring exclamations of the professor. See, he went on, both asking the questions and supplying the answers. Isn't it a beauty? Yes, splendid! Did you ever see such a binding? 
Doesn't the book open easily? Yes, it stops open anywhere. But does it shut equally well? Yes, for the binding unser leaves are flush, all in a straight line, and no gaps or openings anywhere. And look at its back after 700 years. Why, Bolsarian, Claus, or Porgold might have been proud of such a binding. While rapidly making these comments, my uncle kept opening and shutting the old tome. I really could do no less than ask a question about its contents, although I did not feel the slightest interest. And what is the title of this marvelous work? I asked with an affected eagerness, which he must have been very blind not to see through. This work, replied my uncle, firing up with renewed enthusiasm, this work is the Heims Kringler of Snor Tölsen, the most famous Icelandic author of the 12th century. It is the chronicle of the Norwegian princes who ruled in Iceland. Indeed, I cried, keeping up wonderfully. Of course it is the German translation. What? sharply replied the professor. A translation? What should I do with a translation? This is the Icelandic original in the magnificent idiomatic vernacular, which is both rich and simple, and admits of an infinite variety of grammatical combinations and verbal modifications. Like German, I happily ventured. Yes, replied my uncle, shrugging his shoulders. But in addition to all this, the Icelandic has three numbers, like the Greek, and irregular declensions of nouns proper, like the Latin. Ah, said I, a little moved out of my indifference. And is the type good? Type? What do you mean by talking of type, wretched Axel? Type? Do you take it for a printed book, you ignorant fool? It is a manuscript, a runic manuscript. Runic? Yes. Do you want me to explain what that is? Of course not, I replied in the tone of an injured man. But my uncle persevered and told me, against my will, of many things I cared nothing about. Runic characters were in use in Iceland in former ages. They were invented, it is said, by Odin himself. Look there und wander, impious young man, und admire these letters, the invention of the Scandinavian god. Well, well, not knowing what to say, I was going to prostrate myself before this wonderful book, a way of answering equally pleasing to gods and kings, and which has the advantage of never giving them any embarrassment when a little incident happened to divert conversation into another channel. This was the appearance of a dirty slip of parchment, which slipped out of the volume and fell upon the floor. My uncle pounced upon this shred with incredible avidity, an old document, enclosed in immemorial time within the folds of this old book, had for him an immeasurable value. What's this? he cried, and he laid out upon the table a piece of parchment, five inches by three, and along which were traced certain mysterious characters. Here is the exact facsimile. I think it important to let these strange signs be publicly known, for they were the means of drawing on Professor Liedenbrock and his nephew to undertake the most wonderful expedition of the 19th century. Runic glyphs occur here. The professor mused a few moments over this series of characters, then raising his spectacles he pronounced, These are runic letters. They are exactly like those of the manuscript of Snor Tursen. But what on earth is their meaning? Runic letters appearing to my mind to be an invention of the learned to mystify this poor world, I was not sorry to see my uncle suffering the pangs of mystification. 
At least, so it seemed to me, judging from his fingers, which were beginning to work with terrible energy. It is certainly old Icelandic, he muttered between his teeth. And Professor Liedenbrock must have known, for he was acknowledged to be quite a polyglot. Not that he could speak fluently in the 2,000 languages and 12,000 dialects which are spoken on the earth, but he at least knew his share of them. So he was going, in the presence of this difficulty, to give way to all the impetuosity of his character, and I was preparing for a violent outbreak, when two o'clock struck by the little timepiece over the fireplace. At that moment, our good housekeeper Martha opened the study door, saying, Dinner is ready. <sighs> I am afraid he sent that soup to where it would boil away to nothing, and Martha took to her heels for safety. I followed her, and hardly knowing how I got there, I found myself seated in my usual place. I waited a few minutes. No professor came. Never within my remembrance had he missed the important ceremonial of dinner. And yet what a good dinner it was. There was parsley soup, an omelet of ham garnished with spiced sorrel, a filet of veal with compote of prunes, for dessert crystallized fruit, the whole washed down with sweet moselle. All this my uncle was going to sacrifice to a bit of old parchment. As an affectionate and attentive nephew, I considered it my duty to eat for him as well as for myself, which I did conscientiously. I have never known such a thing, said Martha. M. Lidenbrock is not at table. Who could have believed it? I said with my mouth full. Something serious is going to happen, said the servant, shaking her head. My opinion was that nothing more serious would happen than an awful scene when my uncle should have discovered that his dinner was devoured. I'd come to the last of the fruit when a very loud voice tore me away from the pleasures of my dessert. With one spring, I bounded out of the dining room into the study. Chapter 3. The Runic Writing Exercises of the Professor Undoubtedly it is runic, said the professor, bending his brows, but there is a secret in it and I mean to discover the key. A violent gesture finished the sentence. Sit there, he added, holding out his fist towards the table. Sit there und right. I was seated in a trice. Now I will dictate to you every letter of our alphabet which corresponds with each of these Icelandic characters. We will see what that will give us. But by St. Michael, if you should dare to deceive me... The dictation commenced. I did my best. Every letter was given to me one after the other, with the following remarkable result. M-M dot R-N-L-L-S E-S-R-E-V-E-L S-E-E-C capital I-D-E S-G-T-S-S-M-F V-N-T-E-I-E-F N-I-E-D-R-K-E K-T comma S-A-M-N A-T-R-A-T-E capital S S-A-O-D-R-R-N E-M-T-N-A-E capital I N-V-A-E-C-T R-R-I-L capital S-A capital A-T-S-A-A-R dot N-V-C-R-C I E A A B S C C R M I E E V T capital V L F R capital A N T V 
DT, comma, IAC, OSEIBO, KEDII, capital I. When this work was ended, my uncle tore the paper from me and examined it attentively for a long time. What does it all mean? He kept repeating mechanically. Upon my honor, I could not have enlightened him. Besides, he did not ask me and went on talking to himself. This is what is called a cryptogram, or cipher, he said, in which letters are purposely thrown in confusion, which, if properly arranged, would reveal their sense. Only think that under this jargon, there may lie concealed the clue to some great discovery. As for me, I was of the opinion that there was nothing at all in it, though, of course, I took care not to say so. Then the professor took the book and the parchment and diligently compared them together. These two writings are not by the same hand, he said. The cipher is of later dates and the book, an undoubted proof of which I see in a moment. The first letter is a double M, a letter which is not to be found in Tolson's book, and which was only added to the alphabet in the 14th century. Therefore, there are 200 years between the manuscript and the document. I admitted that this was a strictly logical conclusion. I am therefore led to imagine, continued my uncle, that some possessor of this book wrote these mysterious letters. But who was that possessor? Is his name nowhere to be found in the manuscript? My uncle raised his spectacles, took up a strong lens, and carefully examined the blank pages of the book. On the front of the second, the title page, he noticed a sort of stain which looked like an ink blot. But in looking at it very closely, he thought he could distinguish some half-effaced letters. My uncle at once fastened upon this as the center of interest, and he labored at that blot until by the help of his microscope he ended by making out the following runic characters which he read without difficulty. On Socknusum, he cried in triumph. Why, that is the name of another Icelander, a savant of the 16th century, a celebrated alchemist. I gazed at my uncle with satisfactory admiration. Those alchemists, he resumed, Avicenna, Bacon, Lully, Paracelsus, were the real and only savants of their time. They made discoveries at which we are astonished. Has not this Socknesem concealed under his cryptogram some surprising invention? It is so. It must be so. The professor's imagination took fire at this hypothesis. No doubt, I ventured to reply. But what interest would he have in thus hiding so marvelous a discovery? Why? Why? How can I tell? Did not Galileo do the same by Saturn? We shall see. I will get at the secret of this document, and I will neither sleep nor eat until I have found it out. My comment on this was a half-suppressed... Oh, nor you is a Axel, he added. The deuce, said I to myself. Then it is lucky I have eaten two dinners today. First of all, we must find out the key to this cipher. That cannot be difficult. At these words, I quickly raised my head, but my uncle went on soliloquizing. There's nothing easier. In this document, there are 132 letters, viz. 77 consonants and 55 vowels. This is the proportion found in southern languages, whilst northern tongues are much richer in consonants. Therefore, this is in a southern language. These were very fair conclusions, I thought. 
but what language is it? Here I looked for a display of learning, but I met instead with profound analysis. This Soknesem, he went on, was a very well-informed man. Now, since he was not writing in his own mother tongue, he would naturally select that which was currently adopted by the choice spirits of the 16th century. I mean Latin. If I am mistaken, I can but try Spanish, French, Italian, Greek, or Hebrew. But the savants of the 16th century generally wrote in Latin. I am therefore entitled to pronounce this, a priori, to be Latin. It is Latin. Yes, it is Latin, my uncle went on. But it is Latin confused und in disorder, pertubata seo in ordinata, as Euclid has it. Very well, thought I. If you can bring order out of that confusion, my dear uncle, you are a clever man. Let us examine carefully, said he again, taking up the leaf upon which I had written. Here is a series of 132 letters in apparent disorder. There are words consisting of consonants only, as N-R-R-L-L-S, others, on the other hand, in which vowels predominate, as for instance the fifth, U-N-E-E-I-E-F, or the last but one, O-S-E-I-B-O. Now, this arrangement has evidently not been premeditated. It has arisen mathematically in obedience to the unknown law which has ruled in the succession of these letters. It appears to me a certainty that the original sentence was written in a proper manner, and afterwards distorted by a law which we have yet to discover. Whoever possesses the key of this cipher will read it with fluency. What is that key? Axel, have you got it? I answered not a word, and for a very good reason. My eyes had fallen upon a charming picture suspended against the wall, the portrait of Graubin. My uncle's ward was at that time at Altona, staying with a relation, and in her absence I was very downhearted. For I may confess it to you now, the pretty Verlandes and the professor's nephew loved each other with a patience and a calmness entirely German. We had become engaged unknown to my uncle, who was too much taken up with geology to be able to enter into such feelings as ours. Graubin was a lovely blue-eyed blonde, rather given to gravity and seriousness, but that did not prevent her from loving me very sincerely. As for me, I adored her, if there is such a word in the German language. Thus it happened that the picture of my pretty Verlin days threw me in a moment out of the world of realities into that of memory and fancy. There looked down upon me the faithful companion of my labors and my recreations. Every day she helped me to arrange my uncle's precious specimens. She and I labeled them together. Mademoiselle Graubin was an accomplished mineralogist. She could have taught a few things to a savant. She was fond of investigating abstruse scientific questions. What pleasant hours we have spent in study, and how often I envied the very stones which she handled with her charming fingers. Then, when our leisure hours came, we used to go out together and turn into the shady avenues by the Alster, which went happily side by side up to the old windmill, which formed such an improvement to the landscape at the head of the lake. On the road we chatted hand in hand. I told her amusing tales at which she laughed heartily. Then we reached the banks of the Elba, and after having bid goodbye to the swan, sailing gracefully amidst the white water lilies, we returned to the quay by the steamer. This is just where I was in my dream, when my uncle with a vehement thump on the table dragged me back to the realities of life.
Come, said he, the very first idea which would come into anyone's head to confuse the letters of a sentence would be to write the words vertically instead of horizontally. Indeed, said I. Now we must see what would be the effect of that, Axel. Put down upon this paper any sentence you like. Only instead of arranging the letters in the usual way, one after the other, place them in succession in vertical columns, so as to group them together in five or six vertical lines. I caught its meaning, and immediately produced the following literary wonder. I love you well, my own dear Grauben. Exclamation mark. Good, said the professor, without reading them. Now set down those words in a horizontal line. I obeyed, and with this result... I Y L O A U L O L W R B O U comma N G E V W M D R N E E Y E A exclamation mark. Excellent, said my uncle, taking the paper hastily out of my hands. This begins to look just like an ancient document. The vowels and the consonants are grouped together in equal disorder. There are even capitals in the middle of words. Und commas too, just as in Socknusem's parchment. I considered these remarks very clever. Now, said my uncle, looking straight at me, to read the sentence which you have just written, und with which I am wholly unacquainted, I shall only have to take the first letter of each word, then the second, the third, und so forth. And my uncle, to his great astonishment, and my much greater read, I love you well, my own dear Grauben. Hello, cried the professor. Yes, indeed, without knowing what I was about, like an awkward and unlucky lover, I had compromised myself by writing this unfortunate sentence. Aha, you are in love with Grauben, he said, with the right look for a guardian. Yes, no, I stammered. You love Grauben. He went on once or twice dreamily. Well, let us apply the process I have suggested to the document in question. My uncle, falling back into his absorbing contemplations, had already forgotten my imprudent words. I merely say imprudent, for the great mind of so learned a man, of course, had no place for love affairs, and happily the grand business of the document gained me the victory. Just as the moment of the supreme experiment arrived, the professor's eyes flashed right through his spectacles. There was a quivering in his fingers as he grasped the old parchment. He was deeply moved. At last he gave a preliminary cough, and with profound gravity, naming in succession the first, then the second letter of each word, he dictated me the following. M-M-E-S-S-V-N-K-A capital S-E-N-R-A period I-C-E-F-D-O capital K period S-E-G-N-I-T-T-A-M-V-R-T-N E-C-E-R-T-S-E-R-R-E-T-T-E comma R-O-T-A-I-S-A D-V-A comma E-D-N-E-C-S-E-D-S-A-D-N-E-L-A-C-A-R-T-N-I-I-I.
LV, capital I, S-I-R-A-T-R-A-C, capital S-A-R-B, M-V-T-A-B-I-L-E-D-M-E-K, M-E-R-E-T-A-R, C-S-I-L-V-O-C, capital I, S-L-E-F-F-E-N, capital S-N-I, period. I confess I felt considerably excited in coming to the end. These letters named one at a time had carried no sense to my mind. I therefore waited for the professor with great pomp to unfold the magnificent but hidden Latin of this mysterious phrase. But who could have foretold the result? A violent thump made the furniture rattle and spilt some ink, and my pen dropped from between my fingers. That's not it, cried my uncle. There's no sense in it. Then darting out like a shot, bowling downstairs like an avalanche, he rushed into the Konigstrasse and fled. End of chapter three. DraftKings Casino has hundreds of casino games. And right now, all players can enter DraftKings Casino Legends series with a shot at a share of $2.5 million. Download the DraftKings Casino app and use code AUDIOPA. As you play any DraftKings Casino game, you'll rack up points. The more points you have, the closer you are to earning a share of $2.5 million. That's code AUDIOPA. Only on DraftKings Casino. Must be 21 or older. Pennsylvania only in partnership with Holloway Casino. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Mark Bradford. A Journey to the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne. Chapter 4. The Enemy to be Starved into Submission. He is gone, cried Martha, running out of her kitchen at the noise of the violent slamming of doors. Yes, I replied, completely gone. Well, and how about his dinner, said the old servant. He won't have any. And his supper? He won't have any. What? cried Martha, with clasped hands. No, my dear Martha, he will eat no more. No one in the house is to eat anything at all. Uncle Liedenbrock is going to make us all fast until he has succeeded in deciphering an undecipherable scrawl. Oh, my dear, must we then all die of hunger? I hardly dared to confess that. With so absolute a ruler as my uncle, this fate was inevitable. The old servant, visibly moved, returned to the kitchen, moaning piteously. When I was alone, I thought I would go and tell Groiben all about it. But how should I be able to escape from the house? The professor might return at any moment. And suppose he called me. And suppose he tackled me again with his logomachy, which might vainly have been set before ancient Oedipus. And if I did not obey his call... Who could answer for what might happen? The wisest course was to remain where I was. A mineralogist at Benzanson had just sent us a collection of siliceous nodules, which I had to classify. So I set to work. I sorted, labeled, and arranged in their own glass case all these hollow specimens, in the cavity of each of which was a nest of little crystals. But this work did not succeed in absorbing all my attention. That old document kept working in my brain. My head throbbed with excitement, and I felt an undefined uneasiness. I was possessed with a presentiment of coming evil.
In an hour, my nodules were all arranged upon successive shelves. Then I dropped down into the old velvet armchair, my head thrown back and my hands joined over it. I lighted my long, crooked pipe, with a painting on it of an idle-looking naiad. Then I amused myself watching the process of the conversion of the tobacco into carbon, which was by slow degrees making my naiad into a negress. Now and then I listened to hear whether a well-known step was on the stairs. No. Where could my uncle be at that moment? I fancied him running under the noble trees which lined the road to Altona, gesticulating, making shots with his cane, thrashing the long grass, cutting the heads off the thistles, and disturbing the contemplative storks in their peaceful solitude. Would he return in triumph or in discouragement? Which would get the upper hand, he or the secret? I was thus asking myself questions, and mechanically taking between my fingers the sheet of paper mysteriously disfigured with the incomprehensible succession of letters I had written down, and I repeated to myself, What does it all mean? I sought to group the letters so as to form words. Quite impossible. When I put them together by twos, threes, fives, or sixes, nothing came of it but nonsense. To be sure, the 14th, 15th, and 16th letters made the English word ice. The 83rd and two following made sir. And in the midst of the document, in the second and third lines, I observed the words rots, mutable, ira, net, and atra. Come now, I thought. These words seem to justify my uncle's view about the language of the document. In the fourth line appear the word luco, which means a sacred wood. It is true that in the third line was the word tabild, which looked like Hebrew, and in the last, the purely French words mer, arc, mer. All this was enough to drive a poor fellow crazy. Four different languages in this ridiculous sentence. What connection could there possibly be between such words as ice, sir, anger, cruel, sacred wood, changeable, mother, bow, and sea? The first and the last might have something to do with each other. It was not at all surprising that in a document written in Iceland there should be mention of a sea of ice, but it was quite another thing to get to the end of this cryptogram with so small a clue. So I was struggling with an insurmountable difficulty. My brain got heated, my eyes watered over that sheet of paper, its hundred and thirty-two letters seemed to flutter and fly around me like those motes of mingled light and darkness which float in the air around the head when the blood is rushing upwards with undue violence. I was a prey to a kind of hallucination. I was stifling. I wanted air. Unconsciously, I fanned myself with the bit of paper, the back and front of which successively came before my eyes. What was my surprise when, in one of those rapid revolutions, at the moment when the back was turned to me, I thought I caught sight of the Latin words craterem, terrestre, and others. A sudden light burst in upon me. These hints alone gave me the first glimpse of the truth. I had discovered the key to the cipher. To read the document, it would not even be necessary to read it through the paper. Such as it was, just such as it had been dictated to me, so it might be spelt out with ease. All those ingenious professorial combinations were coming right. He was right as to the arrangement of the letters. He was right as to the language. He had been within a hair's breadth of reading this Latin document from end to end, but that hair's breadth, chance had given it to me. You may be sure I felt stirred up. My eyes were dim, I could scarcely see. 
I had laid the paper upon the table. At a glance, I could tell the whole secret. At last, I became more calm. I made a wise resolve to walk twice round the room quietly and settle my nerves, and then I returned into the deep gulf of the huge armchair. Now I'll read it, I cried, after having well distended my lungs with air. I leaned over the table. I laid my fingers successively upon every letter, and without a pause, without one moment's hesitation, I read off the whole sentence aloud. Stupefaction, terror, I sat overwhelmed as if with a sudden deadly blow. What? That which I read had actually really been done? A mortal man had had the audacity to penetrate. Ah! I cried, springing up. But no, no, my uncle shall never know it. He would insist upon doing it too. He would want to know all about it. Ropes could not hold him, such a determined geologist as he is. He would start, he would, in spite of everything and everybody, and he would take me with him, and we should never get back. No, never, never. My overexcitement was beyond all description. No, no, it shall not be, I declared energetically. And as it is in my power to prevent the knowledge of it coming into the mind of my tyrant, I will do it. By dint of turning this document round and round, he too might discover the key. I will destroy it. There was a little fire left on the hearth. I seized not only the paper, but Sacknesum's parchment. With a feverish hand, I was about to fling it all upon the coals, and utterly destroy and abolish this dangerous secret, when the study door opened, and my uncle appeared. Chapter 5. Famine, then victory, followed by dismay. I had only just time to replace the unfortunate document upon the table. Professor Liedenbrock seemed to be greatly abstracted. The ruling thought gave him no rest. Evidently, he had gone deeply into the matter, analytically and with profound scrutiny. He had brought all the resources of his mind to bear upon it during his walk, and he had come back to apply some new combination. He sat in his armchair, and pen in hand, he began what looked very much like algebraic formulae. I followed with my eyes his trembling hands. I took count of every movement. Might not some unhoped-for result come of it? I trembled, too, very unnecessarily, since the true key was in my hands, and no other would open the secret. For three long hours my uncle worked on without a word, without lifting his head, rubbing out, beginning again, then rubbing out again, and so on a hundred times. I knew very well that if he succeeded in setting down these letters in every possible relative position, the sentence would come out. But I knew also that twenty letters alone could form two quintillions, four hundred and thirty-two quadrillions, nine hundred and two trillions, eight billions, a hundred and seventy-six millions, six hundred and forty thousand combinations. Now here were a hundred and thirty-two letters in this sentence, and these hundred and thirty-two letters would give a number of different sentences, each made up of at least a hundred and thirty-three figures, a number which passed far beyond all calculation or conception. So I felt reassured as far as regarded this heroic method of solving the difficulty. But time was passing away. Night came on. The street noises ceased. My uncle, bending over his task, noticed nothing, not even Martha half opening the door. He heard not a sound, not even that excellent woman saying, Will not monsieur take any supper tonight? And poor Martha had to go away unanswered. As 
for me. After long resistance, I was overcome by sleep and fell off at the end of the sofa, while Uncle Liedenbrock went on calculating and rubbing out his calculations. When I awoke next morning, that indefatigable worker was still at his post. His red eyes, his pale complexion, his hair tangled between his feverish fingers, the red spots on his cheeks revealed his desperate struggle with impossibilities, and the weariness of spirit, the mental wrestlings he must have undergone all through that unhappy night. To tell the plain truth, I pitied him. In spite of the reproaches which I considered I had a right to lay upon him, a certain feeling of compassion was beginning to gain upon me. The poor man was so entirely taken up with his one idea that he had even forgotten how to get angry. All the strength of his feelings was concentrated upon one point alone, and as their usual event was closed, it was to be feared lest extreme tension should give rise to an explosion sooner or later. I might with a word have loosened the screw of the steel vice that was crushing his brain, but that word I would not speak. Yet I was not an ill-natured fellow. Why was I dumb at such a crisis? Why so insensible to my uncle's interests? No, no, I repeated. I shall not speak. He would insist upon going. Nothing on earth could stop him. His imagination is a volcano, and to do that which other geologists have never done, he would risk his life. I will preserve silence. I will keep the secret which mere chance has revealed to me. To discover it would be to kill Professor Liedenbrock. Let him find it out himself if he can. I will never have it laid to my door that I led him to his destruction. Having formed this resolution, I folded my arms and waited. But I had not reckoned upon one little incident which turned up a few hours after. When our good Martha wanted to go to market, she found the door locked. The big key was gone. Who could have taken it out? Assuredly, it was my uncle, when he returned the night before from his hurried walk. Was this done on purpose, or was it a mistake? Did he want to reduce us by famine? This seemed like going rather too far. What, should Martha and I be victims of a position of things in which we had not the smallest interest? It was a fact that a few years before this, whilst my uncle was working at his great classification of minerals, he was forty-eight hours without eating, and all his household were obliged to share in this scientific fast. As for me, what I remember is that I got severe cramps in my stomach, which hardly suited the constitution of a hungry, growing lad. Now it appeared to me as if breakfast was going to be wanting, just as supper had been the night before. Yet I resolved to be a hero, and not to be conquered by the pangs of hunger. Martha took it very seriously, and, poor woman, was very much distressed. As for me, the impossibility of leaving the house distressed me a good deal more, and for a very good reason. A caged lover's feelings may easily be imagined. My uncle went on working. His imagination went off rambling into the ideal world of combinations. He was far away from earth, and really far away from earthly wants. About noon, hunger began to stimulate me severely. Martha had, without thinking any harm, cleared out the larder the night before, so that now there was nothing left in the house. Still, I held out. I made it a point of honor. Two o'clock struck. This was becoming ridiculous. Worse than that, unbearable. I began to say to myself that I was exaggerating the importance of the document, that my uncle would surely not believe in it, that he would set it down as a mere puzzle, that if it came to the worst, we should lay violent hands on him 
keep him at home if he thought on venturing on the expedition. That, after all, he might himself discover the key of the cipher, and that then I should be clear at the mere expense of my involuntary abstinence. These reasons seemed excellent to me, though on the night before I should have rejected them with indignation. I even went so far as to condemn myself for my absurdity in having waited so long, and I finally resolved to let it all out. I was therefore meditating a proper introduction to the matter, so as not to seem too abrupt, when the professor jumped up, clapped on his hat, and prepared to go out. Surely he was not going out to shut us in again. No, never. Uncle, I cried. He seemed not to hear me. Uncle Liedenbrock, I cried, lifting up my voice. Aye, he answered, like a man suddenly waking. Uncle, that key. What key? The door key? No, no, I cried. The key of the document. The professor stared at me over his spectacles. No doubt he saw something unusual in the expression of my countenance, for he laid hold of my arm and speechlessly questioned me with his eyes. Yes, never was a question more forcibly put. I nodded my head up and down. He shook his pityingly, as if he was dealing with a lunatic. I gave a more affirmative gesture. His eyes glistened and sparkled with live fire. His hand was shaken threateningly. This mute conversation at such a momentous crisis would have riveted the attention of the most indifferent. And the fact really was that I dared not speak now. So intense was the excitement for fear lest my uncle should smother me in his first joyful embraces but he became so urgent that I was at last compelled to answer. Yes, that key, chance. What is that you are saying, he shouted with indescribable emotion. There, read that, I said, presenting a sheet of paper on which I had written. But there is nothing in this, he answered, crumpling up the paper. No, nothing until you proceed to read from the end to the beginning. I had not finished my sentence when the professor broke out into a cry, nay, a roar. A new revelation burst in upon him. He was transformed. Aha! Clever Sectusum, he cried. You had first written out your sentence the wrong way. And darting upon the paper, with eyes bedimmed and voice choked with emotion, he read the whole document from the last letter to the first. It was conceived in the following terms. In Sneffels Joculus Craterum Quem Delibat, Umbra Scartaris, Julii Intracalendus Descende, Audax Viator, Et Terrestre Centrum Atinges, Quadfessi Arne Sacnusum, which bad Latin may be translated thus. Descend, old traveler, into the crater of the Yokel of Sneffels, which the shadow of Scartaris touches before the calends of July, and you will attain the center of the earth, which I have done. In reading this, my uncle gave a spring as if he had touched a laden jar. His audacity, his joy, and his convictions were magnificent to behold. He came and he went. He seized his head between both his hands. He pushed the chairs out of their places. He piled up his books. Incredible as it may seem, he rattled his precious nodules of flints together. He sent a kick here, a thump there. At last his nerves calmed down and like a man exhausted by too lavish an expenditure of vital power, he sank back exhausted into his armchair. What o'clock is it? he asked after a few moments of silence. Three o'clock, I replied. 
Is it really? The dinner hour is past, and I did not know it. I am half dead with hunger. Come on, and after dinner... Well? After dinner, pack up my trunk. What? I cried. And yours, replied the indefatigable professor, entering the dining room. Chapter 6. Exciting Discussions About an Unparalleled Enterprise At these words a cold shiver ran through me, yet I controlled myself. I even resolved to put a good face upon it. Scientific arguments alone could have any weight with Professor Liedenbrock. Now there were good ones against the practicability of such a journey. Penetrate to the center of the earth? What nonsense! But I kept my dialectic battery in reserve for a suitable opportunity and I interested myself in the prospect of my dinner, which was not yet forthcoming. It is no use to tell of the rage and imprecations of my uncle before the empty table. Explanations were given, Martha was set at liberty, ran off to the market, and did her part so well that in an hour afterwards my hunger was appeased, and I was able to return to the contemplation of the gravity of the situation. During all dinner time, my uncle was almost merry, he indulged in some of those learned jokes which never do anybody any harm. Dessert over, he beckoned me into his study. I obeyed. He sat at one end of his table, I at the other. Axel, said he very mildly, you are a very ingenious young man. You have done me a splendid service at a moment when, wearied out with the struggle, I was going to abandon the contest. Where should I have lost myself? None can tell. Never, my lad, shall I forget it, and you shall have your share in the glory to which your discovery will lead. Oh, come, thought I, he is in a good way. Now is the time for discussing that same glory. Before all things, my uncle resumed, I enjoin you to preserve the most inviolable secrecy. You understand? There are not a few in the scientific world who envy my success, and many would be ready to undertake this enterprise, to whom our return should be the first news of it. Do you really think there are many people bold enough, said I? Certainly. Who would hesitate to acquire such renown? If that document were divulged, a whole army of geologists would be ready to rush into the footsteps of Arne Saknesim. I don't feel so very sure of that, uncle, I replied, for we have no proof of the authenticity of this document. What? Not of the book, inside which we have discovered it? Granted, I admit that Saknesim may have written these lines. But does it follow that he has really accomplished such a journey? And may it not be that this old parchment is intended to mislead? I almost regretted having uttered this last word, which dropped from me in an unguarded moment. The professor bent his shaggy brows, and I feared I had seriously compromised my own safety. Happily, no great harm came of it. A smile flitted across the lip of my severe companion, and he answered, That is what we shall see. Ah, said I, rather put out, but do let me exhaust all the possible objections against this document. Speak, my boy, don't be afraid. You are quite at liberty to express your opinions. You are no longer my nephew only, but my colleague. Pray go on. Well, in the first place, I wish to ask what are this yokel, this sniffles, and this scartaris, names which I have never heard before. Nothing easier. I received not long ago a map from my friend Augustus Petermann at Leipzig. Nothing could be more apropos. Take down the third atlas in the second shelf in the large bookcase, series Z, plate 4. 
I rose, and with the help of such precise instructions could not fail to find the required atlas. My uncle opened it and said, Here is one of the best maps of Iceland, that of Henderson, and I believe this will solve the worst of our difficulties. I bent over the map. You see this volcanic island, said the professor. Observe that all the volcanoes are called yokels, a word which means glacier in Icelandic. And under the high latitude of Iceland, nearly all the active volcanoes discharge through beds of ice. Hence, this term of yokel is applied to all the eruptive mountains in Iceland. Very good, said I. But what of Sneffels? I was hoping that this question would be unanswerable, but I was mistaken. My uncle replied, Follow my finger along the west coast of Iceland. Do you see Reykjavik, the capital? You do. Well, ascend the innumerable fjords that indent those sea-beaten shores and stop at the 65th degree of latitude. What do you see there? I see a peninsula looking like a thigh bone with the knee bone at the end of it. A very fair comparison, my lad. Now do you see anything upon that knee bone? Yes, a mountain rising out of the sea. Right. That is Sniffle. Mm -hmm. That Sniffle? It is. It is a mountain 5,000 feet high, one of the most remarkable in the world if its crater leads down to the center of the earth. But that is impossible, I said, shrugging my shoulders, and disgusted at such a ridiculous supposition. Impossible, said the professor severely. And why, pray? Because this crater is evidently filled with lava and burning rocks, and therefore... But suppose it is an extinct volcano. Mm. Extinct? Yes. The number of active volcanoes on the surface of the globe is at the present time only about 300. But there is a very much larger number of extinct ones. Now, Sneffel is one of these. Since historic times, there has been but one eruption of this mountain, that of 1219. From that time, it has quieted down more and more, and now it is no longer reckoned among active volcanoes. To such positive statements, I could make no reply. I therefore took refuge in other dark passages of the document. What is the meaning of this word Scarteris, and what have the Calends of July to do with it? My uncle took a few minutes to consider. For one short moment, I felt a ray of hope, speedily to be extinguished. For he soon answered thus. care with which Sacknesson guarded and defined his discovery. Sneffels, or Sneffel, has several craters. It was therefore necessary to point out which of these leads to the center of the globe. What did the Icelandic sage do? He observed that at the approach of the Calends of July, that is to say, in the last day of June, one of the peaks, called Scartaris, flung its shadow down the mouth of that particular crater, and he committed that fact to his document. Could there possibly have been a more exact guide? As soon as we have arrived at the summit of Sneffel, we shall have no hesitation as to the proper road to take. Sniffle. Decidedly, my uncle had answered every one of my objections. I saw that his position on the old parchment was impregnable. I therefore ceased to press him upon that part of the subject, and as above all things you must be convinced, I passed on to scientific objections, which in my opinion were far more serious. Well then, I said, 
I am forced to admit that Saknussemm's sentence is clear and leaves no room for doubt. I will even allow that the document bears every mark and evidence of authenticity. That learned philosopher did get to the bottom of Sneffels. He has seen the shadow of Scar-